The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... You know, a lot of kids don't need a lot of insulin, but some kids need a ton. My son's basal, total basal rates for the day was 70 units just for basal. It was bonkers. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Insulone Podcast. I hope you're well, I hope your week has been going well, and your day, whatever time it is, wherever you are, has been going well too. This week, it was my pleasure to speak with Stacey Sims. Stacey's son, Benny, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes just before he turned two years old back in 2006, so very different to the time in which I was diagnosed, because as we know... I was 19 when I was diagnosed, just coming out of my teen years. So it was a tricky year. But as me and Stacey talk about in here, there's not really any perfect time to be diagnosed. Since then, Stacey has been an incredible resource for anybody impacted by type 1 diabetes and offers a huge amount of unbelievable advice throughout this episode. Stacey is an award winning broadcaster, TV anchor, and speaker, and is also the host of her own diabetes podcast, Diabetes Connections, which was started in 2015. So if you have not listened to that podcast yet, I strongly recommend that you do. Of course, keep <laughs> keep listening to this one. But Stacey's podcast, Diabetes Connections, is amazing. She's the author of The World's Worst Diabetes Mom and the award-winning cookbook, I Can't Cook, But I Know Someone Who Can. She was also named to the Charlotte Business Journal's 40 Under 40 and as one of the 50 most influential women in Mecklenburg County by Mecklenburg Times. Stacey is definitely not the world's worst diabetes mom. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed speaking with Stacey. Enjoy. So Stacey, the first thing I think I want to ask you is about your book. So (laughs) you obviously have a massively successful podcast, you have your own book, you have raised a healthy and active type one child. You're definitely not the world's worst diabetes mom, (laughs) but you have titled your book, The World's Worst Diabetes Mom. Where did that title come from? Oh, and it's it's so great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. I love that we're starting out with me talking about being the worst. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a good intro, a good intro. Um, but, you know, it's it's one of those things that over the last almost 15 years now, because my son was diagnosed at the very end of 2006, I started to notice a shift in the diabetes parenting community. Uh, it's a wonderfully supportive, giving, you know, welcoming community. But over the last, I'd say, 10 years as social media has really become a part of all of our lives, I noticed this creeping kind of fear 
And, and not just the general fears of diabetes that I think everybody who lives with it or who um, you know, has a, a child with it, has and, and wants to respect, but the kind of things that were like, you know, oh, um, you know, I don't want my child to go above 120, so he's not going to play soccer. Or, you know, I'd like him to go to sleepover, but if his blood sugar is 250, I'm going to go knock on the door and bring him home at two in the morning. And I started seeing things like that that I hadn't really noticed before in terms of being perfect, trying to hit these goals that were, I mean, great, we want our kids to be healthy, right? We all want our kids to do well, but you cannot be perfect with diabetes. And we can talk about that. I mean, you can, I know you're great. You're fabulous. Whoa, but, you know, I'm, I'm far from perfect. perfect. I'm far from perfect. And I was, I was actually having a conversation on Facebook, which is always a mistake. You know, somebody had asked a question and, you know, we, we all parent differently anyway. And we all parent differently with diabetes anyway. And he disagreed with something I was doing. And he got a little nasty about it to the point where he said, you know, I think you're really going to hurt your son. You know, this is really detrimental to his health. And I, and I said, well, I must be the world's worst diabetes mom. And I like slammed the computer shut. I was really angry. I let him get under my skin. And I thought, that's so silly. But then the light bulb went off because I had, I had written a book years ago um, for charity for JDRF in my local area called I Can't Cook, But I Know Someone Who Can. And it was a cookbook. So we did it and we raised money. And the people that helped me with that book have been talking to me for years about writing a diabetes book. And they said, just put your blog posts together or your podcast episodes together. And I, I didn't like the idea of that. I wanted to have something to say. I wanted to have a, a point of view and have advice. You know, there's a lot of good diabetes books out there already. So long story short, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> that's how the world's worst diabetes mom um, came to be. And every chapter is a mistake, a way we messed up. And amazingly, my son is fine. I'm sure he's even more than fine, which is a great <laughs> thing. And what jumped out at me when I when I was looking into the book, it said this book shares how mistakes and mishaps can actually be a diabetes parent's secret superpower. So how did you turn those inevitable diabetes mistakes, mishaps, as we all experience, into a superpower as a parent? Well... I, I parent without diabetes the same way I parent with diabetes, which is I do my best, I mess it up, hopefully I learn, and I, I move on. You know, when my, my daughter, who was three years older than my son when she was born, you know, I'd never had a baby before. I didn't know what I was doing. So, you know, you mess up, you learn, you get better. And it's the same thing with diabetes. And if you don't let yourself make those mistakes, it's really difficult to have confidence and move forward. So, you know, a good example is this silly story of we went to the beach years and years ago and we uh, disconnected the insulin pump and we tried to reconnect at dinner and it wouldn't go in because the inset was full of sand. And of course, the, oops, can you hear my dog? I'll go yell at her. It's all good. <laughs> okay. As, and the inset was full of sand. So we tried to reconnect. Um, but, you know, you can't do that when it's all clogged up. And um, we had to change the inset out at the restaurant, which is always a, a good time when you've got a squirmy seven-year-old who would really just rather eat his french fries. But we learned at that moment that when you have a tubed pump, it usually comes with these little things that look like pitchforks. And you're supposed to put them as plugs into the inset so that sand doesn't get in. So we learned that during that vacation. And it's helped us ever since. So when I say mistakes, it's not as though he's not safe, right? We're doing our best. We're giving him the guidance and the safety that he needs. But in terms of messing up, you know, technology fails. People forget things, mm. right? We miscalculate, we misdose. And you really just have to be able to troubleshoot and move on. That's something that I always like to touch on here. And it's a common theme that goes through these episodes with anybody that comes on who has type one, they say like, there is so much trial and error. And as we always say, there's no perfect diabetic. And even from my own perspective, I have only learned how to manage blood sugar and diabetes over the years from having so many highs and so many lows. And those highs and lows are inevitable. It's just important that we learn something from them. Why did they happen? What time did they happen? What can we do to hopefully be better by even 1% the next time? There is just so much trial and error. What were you hoping, Stacey, that a parent of a diabetic would get from 
reading your book? Well, what do you hope they do get yeah. from reading? Years ago, um, I was told, and it's one of the best pieces of advice I, I've ever received, that you need to remember that you're raising a child and not raising a number. And that's what I hope people really do get out of the book, that it's important to measure a person with diabetes health, right, by their A1C, by their time and range. But it's also important to measure your quality of life by other things. So, you know, is your child happy? Do you have a great relationship with your child? Do they, you know, are they independent? Do they get to do fun things that make them happy? Um, do they feel confident with their diabetes? Are, are they respectful of it or are they fearful of it? You know, these are things to keep in mind. And I think that with all the wonderful technology we have, one of the problems that's come up is that as human beings, if there's a number that we can see, our immediate instinct is to compare. And then it's to either feel bad that we're not as good, right? Or to worry forever about staying on top. It's just human nature when it comes to numbers. So I'm kind of hoping that people will read the book and realize, wow, you know, she never mentions her son's A1C. She never mentions his time and range in terms of a percentage. And that that's not how we measure success and thriving with diabetes. Now, to be clear, Owen, I don't leave it out because it's terrible or that it's unhealthy or that course, our endocrinologist is going <laughs> to, you know, pull the book. Um, you know, we leave it out for many reasons. But um, I did have our endocrinologist and our diabetes educator read the book, make sure everything was, was cool before I published it. But I think it's really important as a parent of a child with diabetes to step back for a moment and say, okay, my child's A1C might have been 5.8, right, or something amazing. But is he having lunch with his friends at school or is he spending lunch with the nurse? Is he going to recess? Is he weighed down by this phone around his stomach in a belt when he's three years old, he's maybe uncomfortable with. Now, not everybody is or does that. And you can get a 5.8A1C and have a perfectly happy kid. I just put that out as examples of people that I have talked to personally who realize that, you know, maybe a slightly higher A1C is okay for my child's quality of life. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Mm. You always come across, and even in your podcast episodes themselves, you always come across so confidently as the parent of a diabetic. And I know there are parents of diabetics who listen to this podcast and I'm sure thousands who listen to yours. <laughs> Were you always that kind of calm? You come across very calm, which is always nice. <laughs> I'm going to grab that quote and give this to my husband <laughs> and my son. Look what Owen yeah. said. But, but that's a good question because no, I mean, I, when my son was diagnosed and he was not yet two years old, we were in total panic mode. I've, I've cried many tears. Uh, for the first year, I could barely lift my head up. We were so confused. We were so overwhelmed. I was so worried. Uh, you know, I still have moments where I, I worry about, you know, not only just the day-to-day, -day, but the long-term. And my what has helped me very much is I worry, but I let him do it anyway. So I think I'm only calm because, you know, my profession, I only sound calm, let's put it that way, because my profession <laughs> is broadcasting, all right? I've been talking to a microphone since I was like 18 years old, so this part's easy. But um, but I, I do worry. I do have concerns. I do have a lot of frustrations. I mean, he's 16 years old. He's far from perfect. So I would say, you know, don't let the, don't let the voice fool you. Um, but you can do this and not remain super calm. You could have tons of doubts. You can have lots of worries. I mean, I'd be a little concerned about a parent that doesn't feel that way. But you can still let your kid do a lot more than perhaps you think is possible. What were your main worries as a parent when Benny was first diagnosed? Obviously, he was coming up to the age of two. This was before social media, before a lot of the tech that we have now. What were your main worries back then? And I suppose a double barrel question, how were those worries relieved as time went on, if at all? Well, I have to laugh because I, like many people who are not in the diabetes community, I had no idea 
what type 1 diabetes meant. And what's worse, Owen, is I was a health reporter. So I had actually <laughs> talked to families who lived with type 1. I was the um, the master of ceremonies, the MC for a local golf tournament that benefited JDRF. So I would talk to these families every year. And in my head, I was always thinking, okay, what's type one? What's type two? You know, don't say blood pressure, say blood glucose. I mean, when you're not living it, it's it's really silly how little you know. So I did know kids who were thriving and families that were doing well. So that was the first thought I had was, okay, I know we can do this because I remember Ethan and Maddie and Abby. Like, I remember these kids. They're okay. But my first question to our endocrinologist, and you will laugh at me, the only thing I knew about diabetes was something about feet. So I said to him, what do I do with his these, like, these little baby toes? I said, can I still cut his nails? Like, do we have to get special orthopedic shoes? You know, and the the endocrinologist looked at me and was like, oh, this poor woman. <laughs> and he's like, no, nope, I don't think you're going to have to worry about anything. I think his feet are going to be just fine. He'll be okay. You know, uh, let's teach you how to give injections. So that was the first kind of silly thing. But then once it settles in, you're thinking, will he be able to live the life that we had hoped he would live without diabetes, right? Will he... Um, go to kindergarten, make friends, have fun, have play sports, go to camp. Uh, camp, sleepaway camp is a big part of my family's tradition. You know, my dad went, me and my husband both went, my daughter has gone and I wanted to make sure Benny could go too. And so you have all these thoughts, you know, will he be healthy? Will he live a long life? Will he have complications? And, you know, we are here now 14 and a half, almost 15 years later and knock wood, he's very, very, very healthy. And I think his feet are okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they are with, with you as a mother. <laughs> I'm how, not looking. How can they not? He's 16. Ugh. <laughs> Actually, that brings something to mind. I've always, well, not always, but a good few times I've had conversations with my own parents mm. about you know, what it's like having a son with type 1 diabetes. And obviously I was 19, so I was kind of old enough to realize the severity of it. I was old enough to take my own injections, check blood sugar, do these things. And when I have this conversation with my parents, they often think I couldn't imagine having to deal with it with a young child. Obviously, if I was diagnosed younger, they would have had to. Yeah. But because they know the complexities of it, they've so much respect for parents who bring up young children with diabetes. Do you feel as if you almost would have preferred if Benny was diagnosed later in life rather than younger? You know, it's such a hard question, right? Um, I, I think that, yes, I would have preferred that he was, I mean, there's no good age, right? So I'll no. be completely honest with you. I would have preferred if he were diagnosed as a young adult only because I feel like, um, you know, in some ways, you know, as I'm talking on, I'm going to take it all back. Nope, I take it all back. <laughs> I think that it's, I can't, I can't speculate. I was about to go down this, this path of talking about like why it's easier, but it's not, it's not easier. It doesn't matter what age you're diagnosed. Now having a toddler with type one is a circus. It is bananas. You know, we, he had no idea what was going on. So the first two weeks we were basically just holding him down and injecting him. It was horrible, horrible. But after two weeks, he was fine. He was super agreeable to it. He didn't mind anymore. As long as we didn't have to stop him from playing, he would he would take a shot. And we were um, our routine early on was he to feed him when he was hungry and give him a shot of fast acting. So he was up to about eight injections a day before we switched to an insulin pump, and he was fine with that. But I'll tell you, as difficult as it was, and it was very difficult until. I don't know, I'd say probably around age six or seven. And even then, right, then you have different challenges as they get older. He remembers nothing of his diagnosis. He doesn't remember life before diabetes. He has grown up with it. He is so comfortable in his own skin. He's very comfortable being public about it. And he, it's just part of who he is. Now, I would have liked to, to been diagnosed later just because I feel like, unfortunately, it's just so tough on the body, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, he's 16. He spent most of his life with diabetes. By the time he's 19, you know, he'll have spent, you know, almost 17 years with it. So I feel like for his body, it would be better. But I don't know, for his mental health, 
he's doing really well. And I, I, I think it would be very difficult. The one age I think is the, the toughest is that, that tween teenage. That's got to be so, so, so difficult. Mm. Yeah, that's the, that's the time in a diabetic's life that seems to always be expressed as that difficult time. Because naturally, you know, when, when we're teenagers, we're, we're pretty reluctant to go by our parents' recommendations for lots of things. And diabetes will naturally come into that too. So how did you navigate your way through those early teen years? I know Benny's still a teenager now, yeah. but even the earlier ones. I'm going to answer this two two ways. Um, middle school was very difficult. Uh, I just, both of my kids kind of lost their minds in middle school, which is sixth, seventh, and eighth grade in most of the U.S. So, you know, 11, 12, 13, or 10, 11, 12. I mean, he, they, he, both of them, they just had like this brain fog, couldn't remember things, a little bit more irresponsible, not just with diabetes, just you know, I had these elementary school kids who, you know, knew what time to get up for school and had their homework done. And then I had these middle schoolers who were just, you know, awful. (laughs) (laughs) They were a mess. But I think that's just developmentally appropriate. I think their brains are swimming in so many hormones that it's it's really hard to, to be clear. So, of course, diabetes went to the wayside, but it wasn't so much that Benny, I ever felt that he was rebelling or he didn't want to take care of himself. It was more like, oh, I cannot believe I forgot that, right? Or I cannot believe I went to take my pump out to Bolas for lunch and then I was talking to someone and I forgot. That happened all the time. But what was really interesting as he got a little bit older, um, and he loves when I talk about this, but puberty was unreal in terms of how much insulin use went up. His basal rates doubled from age 10 to 12, doubled again before he was 13. And I, I talk about this a lot. I've shared it on the podcast because I don't think many parents talk about it, but it's very, very, very common. You know, a lot of kids don't need a lot of insulin, but some kids need a ton. My son's basal, total basal rates for the day was 70 units just for basal. Wow. It was bonkers. And, you know, we had seen this kid go from, on his pump, he started with a basal rate of 0.025 per hour to almost four units for some hours. And the pump can't keep up. The insets were getting totally overloaded. It just wasn't working. And we switched to untethered, where you take one shot of long acting for all or some of the basal, and then the rest of the basal and all the boluses come from the pump. And I can I can link up to you the episode where we talked about that and went into detail if people are interested. Mm. But um, once you get these enormous doses, the insets on most pumps just have a difficult time keeping up. And that is my layperson opinion. I haven't seen any studies on that. But I got to tell you, once we went untethered, everything went back to pre-puberty levels in terms of A1C and time and range and all that good stuff. And over time, his insulin use has actually gone back down. And we are not untethered anymore. And he's doing great. But I do think that a lot of parents feel that their teenagers are slacking off when in fact their doses are incorrect. Because who wants to look at an insulin pump and see 80 units, right, of basal a day? You feel like, oh my gosh, I must be doing something wrong. Mm. This is terrible. He can't possibly need that much. But he may. And if your kid's basal rates aren't set correctly, they don't have a chance of dosing correctly. Absolutely not. And that's the importance that I even always highlight here about your basal is kind of like that anchor to Mm -hmm. hold you down throughout the day over that 24 hour period as much as possible. But were you anticipating that spike in blood sugar or the or the increase in basal rates? Or was that something where you were kind of consistently seeing Benny's numbers higher and higher and higher and just gradually had to increase the insulin? I'm laughing because if you go back to early episodes of my podcast, I started the podcast more than six years ago. You can hear the fear in me anytime we start talking about the teen years. I am preparing. I have braced myself since Benny was about seven or eight years old. I'm like, it's coming. It's coming. What are we going to do? So I really, um, I was on the lookout, but it did take me by surprise and it happened very suddenly. Benny was about 10 and a half and maybe 11 and we were at the endo and you know we had just started using a Dexcom when he was nine years old it's hard to remember now Owen but you know in the U.S. where we've been fortunate to have access to the Dexcom for many years it's really only been around for 12 years and it's only been good 
uh, honestly, for about eight <laughs> years, seven years. I mean, I, I didn't think it was accurate enough to ask my son to wear another device. And so when he was nine, he started wearing it. And, you know, we weren't really using it to its fullest. But I say all that to say he was about 10 and a half and his A1C jumped to a number we had never seen. And I burst into tears like a ding dong in the doctor's office because I don't like to let him see me get emotional. And our endocrinologist, who is the same endocrinologist we met in the hospital who laughed at me about the toes, um, he looked at Benny. He said, your mom's going to be fine. You're in puberty. Welcome to crazy town. And he just adjusted all the basal rates in the pump and said to us, it's going to be a rocky road. We're going to need to keep an eye on this. But he's been, our, our endocrinologist has been a huge help and really went with us to try these different methods, untethered and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it did happen pretty much to me overnight, although it was obviously a couple of months. And then, as I said, basal rates doubled age 10 to 12 and doubled again to 13. But they are back down. Um, to, I wouldn't say pre-puberty levels, but really manageable now that he's 16. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that, Stacey, because as I said, there are a lot of parents who listen to this podcast. <laughs> and if they didn't, if they weren't aware of that impact of the hormones around puberty, it can hit you quite suddenly and unexpectedly. Yeah. And you can think, you know, what, what has changed? What am I doing wrong? As you say, and you might not be doing anything wrong at all. It's just that our bodies are amazing things and they change, particularly <laughs> around those few years. So with that, our diabetes management needs to change too, to accommodate for those changes. And it's these poor kids, because all of their friends are going through the same thing, but we just don't know, right? We don't mm -hmm. see the insulin amounts changing in their friends without diabetes. We don't see all the, you know, hormones percolating, but, you know, our kids, we, we know everything. We see everything. Yeah. <laughs> Stacey, is there any advice you'd offer yourself <laughs> back when Benny was initially diagnosed of anything you know now? I would say keep reaching out to the community. Find the people that can help you. I was very fortunate that, as I said, I knew a couple of people with children with type 1. So I kind of met up with them early on, but they didn't live in my part of town. So I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a very large metro area. So the closest people I knew were close to an hour away. So we didn't see them very often. And it wasn't until my son went to kindergarten that I started meeting some local people. Actually, it was first grade because when he was in kindergarten, he was the only child in the elementary school. But by the end of first grade, there were three other kids who had moved in or been diagnosed. And I organized a dinner with those moms. And that became the basis of a very large group that we now have in my area for parents with the purpose of meeting up in person. And I would have told myself, start that sooner. Reach out, try to find people. Yes, it was before social media, but you can do it. And that to me was a huge lifeline and just so much help because our endocrinologist is fantastic. You know, we've gotten support from other organizations, but that in-person connection of talking to other parents, helping each other out, you know, whether it's the middle of the night or somebody's run out of insulin or somebody needs an overlay to keep the Dexcom on or whatever, that to me has been the most important um, help for me. 100%. And I think that's, that again highlights the importance of getting involved with some sort of community that's out there. It might not be in person, probably hasn't been in person given the past year and a half. Right. We haven't really <laughs> been able to socialize. Oh. But that shows and emphasizes how much of an impact beneficially even the online community can have. Because essentially you can reach out to a diabetic anywhere in the world at any time. And to hear their firsthand accounts of you know, how they deal with things day to day, week to week, year to year, it can have a big impact on you, which is which is always a massive positive with diabetes yeah. management. You know, but you got to be so careful with the online community. And I say this as someone who loves the diabetes online community. But I would say to parents, be very, very careful. Just like you wouldn't take parenting advice from someone you don't know, who might not share your values, who might not share your parenting style, who knows nothing about your child's body. I'd be very careful about taking diabetes advice. Now, community support is great, 
right? Uh, you know, you're not in this alone. I'm with you. But I, I hate to say this, but many of the large parenting groups, especially on Facebook, have become a place of some support, but also of judgment and of competition and of I could never and how could you? What kind of mother? You know, that kind of stuff. And I would just be very careful of feeling taking those things very personally. If you ask a question and you get some responses that are a little questionable, just keep scrolling. Just, you know, maybe find a local group, find a smaller group because um I think it's just human nature and social media is yeah, you know, it's difficult to navigate sometimes. So, I love the community, but I think that sometimes social media distorts what the community is all about. Is there any ways that you would kind of separate yourself from that. Let's say, for example, you are a new parent to a type mm -hmm. 1 diabetic who has just been diagnosed and you're questioning what's going on. You've no idea. There's a hundred different things to consider each day now. Yeah. How would you be able to tell the difference between, say, somebody not giving you the best advice or not what? helping you in any way online compared to the ones that do really care? What a great question, right? Oh my goodness. I would, if you see something that you think is questionable, you're saying to yourself, that sounds like it might work, but it sounds weird, or that's not what my endocrinologist is telling me, or mm, that just doesn't feel right. I would ask the person some questions. What's your source? Where did you learn that? Or you know, hey, tell me a little bit more about you as a person. And I know this is kind of a weird thing to say, but, you know, you can find the, the person in the group. You can scroll through and see their other posts. <laughs> you know, was their child diagnosed last week and they're giving you advice, right? Do they perhaps, I'll give you a great example. And this is not to say anything negative about, um, I'm about to talk about homeschooling and I don't, nothing negative at all. I have great friends who homeschool, but that's not my style. So a parent who chooses to homeschool their children and me, the parent who could not send their children to kindergarten fast enough, right? Get out of my house. We have different <laughs> parenting styles. So I might take advice from that person, but I should also filter it with the lens that they have chosen a completely different parenting style to mine. So it doesn't make it negative necessarily. That's an example of just different. But perhaps this is a parent who believes that their way or the highway and they're going to spank their child, they're going to have punishment for not wearing a CGM or punishment for not bolusing at lunch, and you know, which is never how I parent. That's a parent that I'm not going to take advice from, that I'm going to dismiss out of hand because we philosophically disagree. And those are the kinds of things to look out for. You know, if the little alarm bells are going off, especially in your first year of diagnosis, be careful of people who are also in their first year of diagnosis giving you advice and always check with your endocrinologist. And I get pushback on that, Owen, which I think is interesting. People are like, oh, the endos don't care. They don't know your child. They're just worried about lawsuits, which to me just boggles my mind because we've had such good experiences. But people forget endocrinologists see thousands of children, most of them, over years. They know the long experience of diabetes and they know your child's body and physiology. My child's body is not like your child's body. And so I always say, check with your endo and don't be afraid to challenge them. If you've seen something online that you feel very passionate about, you know, talk to them. And I, I feel like most of the time that will help. Sometimes you get an endo who is, you know, you can't have that pump, only this pump, or I don't want to do that, or no, I'm not going to challenge the insurance company. And then you really have to make some tough decisions. But I, gosh, it, I could go on about social media all day. I feel like there's so much pressure and, and the information on there isn't always like bad and negative and wrong, but oftentimes it just doesn't apply to the way I want to raise my child. Absolutely. Fantastic answer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's important for people to realize is the fact that all type one diabetes is the same, but no type one diabetic is the same. Right. And there's no one size fits all for anybody out there. And as you say, our bodies, our children, our lifestyle, our activity, our stress can all be completely different. So what works for you will likely not work for me. Yeah. And, and vice versa. 
you know, I, I think about, I talked about those parents, those four parents, those three others and me that we met in first grade. And it was two girls and two boys, and they could not have been more different. My son has always been a bigger dude. He is now at 16. He's like six feet tall. He's 215. You know, he's really in great shape. Very, you know, I don't know, muscly. Can I say that? He'll be totally embarrassed, but he's in really good shape. (laughs) But He's a big dude and he always has been. And one of the girls was super petite and she probably weighed half of what Benny weighed at the same age. You can't tell me that those two kids are going to manage diabetes the same way. Right. And she was a super girly girl and loved to dress up and, you know, wanted to coordinate her purse that she carried her stuff into her skirt. And, you know, and there's my son who like, did you put a shirt on today? Is it clean? Is it on <laughs> inside out? You know, I mean, they've just managed things very differently. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I always ask anyone that comes on, and I kind of ask myself sometimes too, of what have I learned about myself? What have you learned from your own diagnosis, because there's always something that we will learn from the good and the bad in our lives. What have you learned about yourself, Stacey, from raising a a type one diabetic child? Gosh, off the top of my head, I would say I've learned that I need a sense of humor, that I handle difficult situations with humor. And I think that that can be a very important tool. I take diabetes, I, I take diabetes very seriously, but I have to make jokes and laugh a little bit, find things that are funny, because to me that that kind of takes away the power of diabetes, right? It's so serious. It, it's so important. We have to manage around it that I had to find ways, especially when Benny was tiny, of just having lighter moments and letting myself laugh, which I think really helped over the years in some more serious situations to, you know, if you can talk about it, if you can laugh about it, then you can kind of work your way through it. And I didn't realize that until, you know, we were in the in the mire of those early days. Um, one of the things that just made me laugh so much was... Um, when Benny was tiny, he used to pretend that his stuffed animals had diabetes and he had an Elmo. And it was so funny to watch him, you know, check his blood sugar, pretend, you know, do all this stuff. And Elmo never needed an injection. He always needed a juice box. He was always low. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so funny. You know, there were a lot of situations like that where most of the time it was stuff where I wanted to cry. I mean, you know, he wouldn't want to change his pump inset because he was scared of the noise or it hurt. And it was, it was emotional, right? It was very tough as a parent. So we would try to find funny ways, you know, when he was small enough, my husband would hold him upside down and we would do it, you know, crazy things, whatever he wanted. So I, I've learned that I've learned that I'm, I'm really strong. Um, I've, I've learned that I, I can be okay with worrying about my son. And, you know, I worry about my daughter too without diabetes. She's in college now, very far away from home when she's in school. I've learned that I'm okay worrying about them, but letting them go. Um, And that's very, very hard. And, you know, my son just got back from a month in Israel. He was gone for more than 30 days with a camp group that he's been part of since he was nine years old. But this is a non-diabetes camp. And I was worried every single day. I didn't talk about it on social media. I didn't post about it. Close friends knew, but I was too superstitious to say anything or share fun pictures or anything like that until he was home. And I, I'm not sure that if I went back to Stacy in 2006, that I would believe that I would have the strength to let my son go. And that's what it is. You have to be strong enough to let them go. You have to give them the gift of you worrying about them. That's what being a parent is. I don't know why. Oh, and I don't know why any of us had children because all we do is worry <laughs> about them. All we do is worry. Diabetes or not. Yeah, it's funny. I, <laughs> I've had numerous conversations with my own parents about <laughs> how I have two older brothers. So we're obviously not children anymore. But my parents <laughs> always say, when you have kids, you never stop having children. No matter no matter how yeah. old we are, there will always be something to worry about. Yeah, there's no finish line, which is great and also terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so you've already been through your, I suppose, your initial diabetes journey since Benny had been diagnosed in 2006. Yeah. You now have 
a very successful podcast, which you started in 2015. What was your initial motivation for that? Oh, you know, the podcast was interesting. I'm a big podcast listener and I have been for many years, Um, you know, since the days when you needed your iPod and you'd plug it into the computer, right, to get the shows. Um, But when, um, before I started Diabetes Connections, I listened to a lot of diabetes podcasts. And there are there are there were a lot then, there are a lot now, and most of them are wonderful. But most of them are like yours. They are adults sharing their stories, talking to other people. There there wasn't the one that I really wanted to hear at the time. My background is in broadcast journalism. I was a radio show host for many years. I was a TV reporter for many years focusing on health, and I wanted more of a newsy type show. So that's why I started Diabetes Connections. And frankly, I was a little intimidated because I didn't know what I was doing. The technical side, the the talking side was fine, but the production was really scary. But once I got through that, I really wanted to interview, you know, tech companies and um, other, other, you know, people living with diabetes, but more of what you would might hear if you listen to a a talk radio station or a magazine show on television. And that's why I started. I did not want to tell a lot of personal stories about Benny, about me. Um, you know, there's, there are already enough people doing that. And also, I've always been a little uncomfortable sharing a ton of his information. That's why I wasn't a very good parent blogger. I have a blog for many years that I think three people read because I wouldn't <laughs> share anything. As you've, I've said, I don't share his numbers. You know, I don't share a lot. The book is the biggest bunch of stories that I've ever told. And he and I sat down together and went through it and made sure it was okay to talk about. But that's why I started the podcast. And it's been really rewarding to me. Um, Selfishly, I've just learned so much. And um, I hope people enjoy it. It's been great fun. But that's, you know, when I'm talking to some companies, and I'm able to do some follow-up questions and really kind of try to hold their feet to the fire. I mean, most of these people don't answer the questions that we want to know, but we try. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's pretty much why I did it. Do you feel that your life as a parent of a type 1 diabetic and Benny's life benefited from the fact that you had a podcast, benefited from the fact that you were speaking to these people all the time and you were you were probably learning so much so quickly about diabetes? Yeah, absolutely. Hands down. I learned a lot. Um, you know, Untethered isn't something I learned from the podcast per se, but it's something I learned because I was connected to a person through the podcast and they told me they had done it with their teenager. Um, yes, I feel like I have learned so much that has helped him in terms of, you know, not just management style, but ways to use technology, what's coming. Um, you know, it's it's really been as I said, pretty selfishly, I, I learn about everything in advance. You know, it's interesting. I, I get asked a lot like, oh, do you get all your stuff for free? Do you get all your supplies for free? And I purposefully do not. Um, we, I do take sponsorships on the show. I'm very open. I do a ton of disclosing on the show, which I think is really important. But I do not get diabetes supplies for Benny for free. My feeling is if something goes wrong or I feel like changing quickly, or he feels like changing quickly, more importantly, um, I don't want to be beholden to any of these companies. So we're not part of any of those programs, and we don't take diabetes stuff for free. Every once in a while, someone will send me something to review, and I will disclose that. But for the most part, I I just don't work that way. Mm. You've had some amazing guests on as well, and (laughs) what's so good about it is, and you say yourself, in inverted commas, everyday type 1 diabetics who inevitably have so many interesting stories and so many people who do amazing things. But is there any one story, experience, or piece of advice that someone told you or spoke about on the podcast that has stuck with you since? Oh, there are so many. There are so many. But two really, really, really stand out. Um, wait, I'm going to add another one. There were three. <laughs> no, we'll go two. All right, we'll More the better. Okay. All right. Sorry. So (laughs) um, the first one is Ernie Prado, who works at NASA. He is a literal rocket scientist, and he's been at NASA for several years. And he came on to tell me his story. He struggled with diabetes when he was in college, struggled to the point where he shared on the show that he did not check his blood sugar for probably two years. He gave himself insulin, but he never checked. And, you know, his A1Cs were all over the place and, you know, it was very high and he was fulfilling the dream of working at NASA. But the reason I share that, and he got it together actually, because he was denied an opportunity at work. Uh, They said, this is too dangerous for you to do. 
And he thought to himself, gosh, I've really got to turn this around. You know, his A1C was too high to do the, the technical thing they wanted him to do. But I share that because here's a guy who's got his life together, right? Super successful. And yet he struggled and he shared that part of his struggle. And I thought, wow, this is such a show of strength to share that first of all. And who hasn't struggled, right? So that was wonderful for me. That has stuck with me for years and years. Um, the other one of three, uh, Dr. Bill Polanski, uh, who is an amazing, I think he's a psychiatrist, he might be a psychologist, uh, with the Diabetes Behavioral Institute. And he talks about the mental health burden all the time. But we did an episode called Evidence-Based Hope. And I, I'm sorry, Owen, I start talking really fast when I get excited. You're going to have to slow this down. No, please, please. I'm still with you. I'm still with you. <laughs> okay. So he did an episode with me called Evidence-Based Hope. And that was all about why we don't hear better news from studies about people with type 1 diabetes. And he laid out how much better it is getting. And he laid out these studies, you know, we've most of us know about the, uh, you know, DCCT trials from way back in the day, but there's another trial called EDICT, E-D-I-C, that was completed in 2009. And basically, these studies are showing that if you can get your A1C to a, a range that's, you know, 7, 7.5, which is much higher than a lot of people in the community think is acceptable these days that your chances of complications go way down and that it's only getting better, that more management, you know, more education, we're able to use these tools to get A1Cs even lower. But if you look at the actual science, that things are getting much better in terms of complications. And then the last one, and my favorite, was when I talked to Dr. Stephen Ponder several years ago. He is um, a pediatric endocrinologist who lives with type 1. He's lived with it for close to 55 years now. He um, is the author of Sugar Surfing. He's got a big following for, for that kind of technique of managing blood glucose. But I asked him, what is the biggest indicator? Because he has seen and treated families for years and years and years. You know, how do you know somebody's going to do a, quote, good job with diabetes? How do you know a family is going to have a good outcome and have a healthy kid? And I thought he was going to say, like, sugar surfing, or you need to get on an insulin pump right away, or you need a CGM. And what he said was, I can always tell because it's the family that supports the person with diabetes. Whatever that means to that family, when they love and support them, you know, when they rally around them and say, we're here to help, what can we do? That's the family that's going to be fine. That's the kid that's going to grow up healthy. Doesn't matter what technology they use. And I thought that was so interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm so lucky to have grown up in a house that was supportive of me. And I hopefully am raising my children with love and support. But when you think about all of these worried parents who feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not doing right by my child. I'm the worst for real. You know, oh my gosh, his A1C peaked up to eight for a couple of months. Oh my God. When you sit back and think, it really sounds silly. You just need to love your child and support them. But that's really where it all starts. And if an endocrinologist who's seen thousands and thousands of families comes up with that advice and that conclusion, then I'm going to take it very seriously. So I could go on. I have so many. I mean, this community, you know, is amazing. People have such great things to say. I could listen to you tell that story all day. <laughs> so, yeah, really, really beautifully put, but also so reassuring for anybody out yes. there who is kind of new to this diabetic life of yes. the fundamentals of being happy and managing your life and managing your diabetes are that support system. And that's yeah. just the idea of we're in this together. Yeah. And we can face anything that we need to face, which is which is the most important thing. I have one more question for you, Stacey. Mm. It's an interesting one, but I always like All to right. finish on uh -oh. a nice positive note. <laughs> if you had the opportunity to thank diabetes for something, what would that be? Thank diabetes for something. Ugh. The only good thing <laughs> about <laughs> diabetes is... Um, the friendships and the relationships that we've made along the way, um, which is a cliche, but we really have made some wonderful friends and met some incredible people throughout this journey. And uh, it's, you know, it's funny because uh, for, for me, my, my mom, my diabetes mom friendships have been so important and so vital because there's things that we can say to each other that we can't say to our kids. We're not going to burden them with our feelings. I don't think that's fair to them. Although I've shared a few things with Benny over the years, but I need those friendships. Interestingly, I don't think his answer would be the same. 
he has friends with diabetes and diabetes camp meant a lot to him when he was younger. But, you know, he's at the point now, and maybe this will change, you know, where he doesn't have a lot of friends with diabetes. He doesn't seem to need the community as much as he once did. Now, the difference is he's had that community since he was very young. So he knows it's there if he needs it. But he doesn't really seem to lean on it as much as he used to. And that's okay. You know, he's going through some different stuff right now. So for me, it would definitely be the community. The only other thing is, you know, it's given me this weird bond with my son. You know, we were so physical together for a lot of his life because, you know, when you're poking your kid's fingers, you're checking blood sugars, you're inserting insets and Dexcoms on the body, you're, you're physically closer in a way that, you know, my daughter and I, she's 19 and we're still, you know, we'll sit on the couch together and watch a movie. We'll kind of snuggle, you know, I don't know if that's a mom and girl thing, but Benny is still, you know, the same way with me. And I wonder, just kind of thinking about it, if some of that is because of diabetes. And if so, that's another thing I would say thank you for. I love it. I have to say, Stacey, I've really, really enjoyed this chat. And I know that anybody listening to this is going to get a lot of value from listening to you. And if there is anybody listening who hasn't yet started listening to Stacey's podcast, start listening right now. Turn this podcast <laughs> off. Turn, no, turn hers no. on. <laughs> Stacey, where can people find out more about you, your book, and your podcast? Easiest place is diabetes-connections.com. That's the website that's got the shows. It's got the book. It's got everything on it. And oh, and you, you make me laugh because, you know, we're about to go into the next phase, right? Which is getting ready for college. I have no idea how I'm going to manage that. So let me come back on in about four years <laughs> and, and I'll let you know how all of that went because Absolutely. I don't know that I'm ready. Oh, Please, it'll be an honor. And look, oh. listen, <laughs> Stacy, thank you again. I really appreciate your time. I've really, really oh. enjoyed this. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Chat soon. What a guest. Stacey really puts my podcasting skills to shame quite a bit. (laughs) Oh, and there's the voice crack. I was wondering where it would come. Big, big, big thank you to Stacey again. I really enjoyed that chat. I always say it on here, but every time I speak to people who are so involved with their diabetes or their child's diabetes or a friend's or spouse or whatever it might be, I always get something from the conversation and particularly somebody like Stacy who has done so much for diabetes is continuing to do so much for diabetes. I really even personally just get a lot from these sort of conversations. So again, massive thank you to Stacy for coming on. If you haven't listened to her podcast, like I said earlier, I strongly advise you do. It's an excellent resource for anybody who is listening and there's a lot you'll get from it. As always, Appreciate you. Appreciate your time. I know it's valuable. I hope you got something from the episode. I'm sure you did. I would be surprised. (laughs) I'd be surprised if you didn't, as I did. Like we always say, if you enjoy the podcast, if you get something from it, please share it. Please rate it. Please comment or review. The more activity around the podcast, the more you share it really helps the podcast and helps us reach more diabetics out there. That is the goal. That's why we do the podcast. So as I say all the time, if you get value from this podcast, it's likely somebody else out there will too. So the more you share, the better. And as always, any thoughts, questions, stories, experiences you want to share with myself or Graham, please, please, please don't hesitate to reach out. We love getting those emails. That email is theinsalonepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know. The more, the better. We love them coming in. Have a fantastic week. Have a fantastic day. Look after your blood sugars. Stay happy. Have a good week. And I'll chat to you soon. Good luck.